Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for you. Your stool is ready. Let's get right into it. Uh, Jim, one of the things we've been talking about and pulling our hair out over the last several months is why uh, figures at the CDC, uh, why teachers unions, why other figures have been so reluctant to say, yes, the science is clear. It's safe that uh, kids can go back to school. But uh, whether it's the American Federation of Teachers, Chicago teachers, L.A. teachers, there's always a reason. Ventilation systems, something that we can't go back. But uh, the good news is today, Jim, is that uh, we are getting closer to getting a lot of kids back into school. As you point out today, uh, I think there's only 6% of school districts where everybody's still online. Uh, Hybrid has certainly beefed up. Uh, We've got that uh, going here in the county where I live in Virginia, two days in school, two days out, and then one do your work day, I guess. Other than that, there's, uh, was it 44% are now fully back in school. So I don't know if this is a situation where it's like outstanding precincts on election day. There could be some really big districts where they're, they're not really back yet, uh, whether it's LA or Chicago or something like that. But uh, we're clearly headed in the right direction. And, and, and really in the past couple of months, it looks like. Indeed, Greg, this Martini is inspired by something I wrote in the corner earlier this morning. Um, Throughout this pandemic, it's been frustrating and the inability to find good updated statistics about what percentage and how many schools were fully open, how many were fully closed, and how many were in some sort of hybrid where kids were going certain days of the week and certain days not. And at one point, I believe, in fact, I think the Vermont um, State Secretary of Education was asked do you know how many schools are open to that? And he said, yeah, that's not something I need to know about on a day-to-day basis. And I remember thinking, okay, is there some other secretary of education in the state we could ask for this information? <laughs> if, if you don't need to know this information, who does? Or if we want to know this, you know, short of calling every school in the state and asking, are you open? This seems like the data would be good for states to keep track of. Well, the American Enterprise Institute uh, along with Davidson College, I believe, put together a, a, what's called a return to learn tracker. Basically, they are collecting this data <clears throat> from all the different school districts across the country, putting them together. The reason this is good news is that the 6% uh, holding all classes remotely is the lowest it's been all year. And the 44% of all districts holding classes in person is the highest it's been all year. So the numbers are generally moving in the direction we'd like them to. Um, Now, the one thing that kind of nags at me and frustrates me is that there's a lot of range in hybrid learning. Right now in Fairfax County, kids are going two days a week. But as of, uh, I guess, really a week from month yesterday, it turns to four days a week. And if you think in-person learning is a good thing, well, then you're happier with four days a week than with two days a week. Uh, You know, and right now, I think the word is that they're planning on going full five days a week back to normal come late August or September. From where I sit, once you get the kids in the cl- into the classroom for a certain part of the week, uh, you're more than halfway there. One, you're getting the kids socializing again. They're interacting with their peers. <clears throat> they're obviously, they're taking precautions. They're wearing masks. They're spaced out a bit. Uh, but by and large, you're finally, they're not isolated alone in their rooms staring at a screen all day. I think it's generally, you know, they get to see each other. They get to run around outside. They get to go back to being kids again and teenagers get back to being teenagers again for better, for worse, I guess. And uh, that's a big step. And the other thing which I think is important, it's been interesting to see the number of people who've responded 
to say, Jim, this isn't good news at all. This is absolutely ridiculous. These teachers unions are being ridiculous. It should be five days a week back to normal. Absolutely right now. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that too. I'd like to see schools open five days a week, but not every parent is as confident about the uh, low risk of spread at schools as you and I and, and most listeners of this podcast are. So one of the ways you build confidence is you take these little baby steps. You do this, and okay, let's do this two days a week and let's demonstrate. And let's see if you end up having a terrible outbreak. All the teachers are, are, are vaccinated. All the school staff at least have the option of being vaccinated. They should be okay. Let's demonstrate that this can work on a smaller scale and build up from there. This, you know, this isn't necessarily the perfect solution, but this is how you get back to full uh, classes all the time. And it, it's interesting to see how many people are just really mad about this. By the way, we should note that in certain communities like Pueblo, Colorado, Burlington, Massachusetts, uh, certain parts of your home state of Michigan, they have gone back to remote learning because there's been a really bad outbreak in those particular communities. I'm not, as much as I want to see schools reopen, that doesn't strike me as a crazy thing to do. You got a really high local case rate. You want to close it for two weeks, go back to distance learning. Let's do that as long as you're ready to put them back once those rate numbers get back down again. Um, and it's worth noting a couple of the, uh, you know, fairly big school districts like Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, New York City later this month is going back to bring about 51,000 more students. So as far as I'm concerned, we're moving in the right direction. We have proven the schools can be open. Once you've proven you can do it two days a week, it's a lot easier to say, okay, now let's move it to three days a week, four days a week, five days a week. Um, the reaction to this, Greg, I think has been kind of illustrative of the number of people who are just really mad at the teachers unions, really mad that it's taking this long, really mad that for most kids, you know, either close to a year or an entire year, or in some cases, even more than a year has been lost to, you know, due to this pandemic. They've been doing distance learning. Distance learning works okay for some kids, doesn't work at all for a whole bunch of other kids. I, I get all that. But the question is, if you have these people who are, you know, doubtful and skeptical and who aren't convinced that it's safe to send their kids back, do you want to yell at them? Do you want to berate them? Do you want to yell at them they're being paranoid? Or do you want to change their minds by demonstrating that kids can get back into the school and not have this terrible outbreak? To me, it's pretty simple. But I do think there are a whole bunch of people in this world who just really like being angry at other people and whose reaction to this news is to fume instead of saying, hey, we've managed to figure out how to get kids back into the classroom in most parts of the country. And one little asterisk I point to this, we hear a lot about the worst examples. And I think Chicago Public Schools counts... Uh, uh, and Chicago's teachers union probably ranks right up there. And we should hear about them because they are terrible and they are probably one of the great and lasting and most consequential injustices of this entire pandemic. But they're not necessarily representative of, this, of the country as a whole. And I, there's a whole bunch of school districts across this country that have reopened and had no real incidents. And those school districts probably deserve some attention too. Well, uh, pat on the back and uh, uh, growing applause for those who have been able to figure it out. Uh, I still think the teachers unions deserve a huge uh, condemnation, a lot of them anyway, for how they have handled this. And again, not teachers necessarily, but teachers unions in some of these places, because they keep talking about how they're standing up for the most vulnerable students. Well, it's the most vulnerable students that most desperately need to be in school. And so their contradictory rationale for why they constantly find reasons not to be back in school is uh, ever, ever maddening. But uh, good to note the numbers are improving on that front. All right, Jim, let's talk about some other good news here. And that's my pillow. It's not just the pillows. It's not just the towels. It's not just the sheets. They've now introduced the new My Slippers. 
They took two years to develop to ensure they are the highest in quality and comfort. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get 40% off with the promo code MARTINI. My slippers are durable, meant to be worn all day, if you like, indoors, outdoors. They have beautiful leather suede and cozy faux fur linings and a sole, again, designed for indoors or outdoors. You have moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors. They have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. I'm wearing them right now. They're so comfortable. I love these things. Three layers, a three-tier cushioning system. One of them is the MyPillow patented fill, which you get in the pillows. Then there's a comfort memory foam, plus a patented impact gel. It's so, so comfortable. I love these things. For a limited time, MyPillow is offering 40% off the new My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. And while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. You can only save that 40% though on the My Slippers with the promo code Martini. Call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, this news broke exactly as we finished taping yesterday, so we've had a little bit of time to uh, think it over. Uh, President Biden announcing that he wants all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan by September 11th, which would be the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. By the time some folks listen to this, you may have heard his public statement. We know some of the excerpts of that. Uh, One is which, I am now the fourth American president to preside over an American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility to a fifth. He also says we cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create the ideal conditions for our withdrawal, expecting a different result. Now, the Trump administration had actually negotiated uh, a general withdrawal by May 1st. So this is actually going to be a little bit later than that. Uh, I think you and I both had the same reaction here about uh, the symbolism of that particular day and whether that actually accomplishes a whole lot. Um, And then as far as whether this is the right move, um, and part of me uh, sympathizes with the libertarians that say it should have been done a long time ago. And then part of me sympathizes with the argument that, you know what, if we're completely gone, it's just going to devolve to the way it was. So I'm hopeful that at least uh, we'll have some sort of way of being able to dive back in there if we have to. Uh, What do you make of Biden's timing and his rationale? Yeah, look, it's very easy to understand. And it's a fair argument. It's been 20 years. What are you going to accomplish in year 21 that you haven't accomplished in the first 20 years? You can give variations of that argument going back for quite a few years. What are you going to accomplish in year 20 that you couldn't accomplish in year 19 and and all of that? It's it's understandable that. But I do kind of feel like the conversation about Afghanistan isn't really that connected to the conditions on Afghanistan, which is why when I wrote the Morning Joel today, I felt this need to to point out that like, again, first of all, notice how often Afghanistan just disappears from the news cycle for long stretches. Um, And I really get irked when I hear people referring to it as the forever war. Uh, To me, that's an indicator that a person is not really, uh, in some cases, may not have updated their rhetoric on Afghanistan from the end of the Bush years um, and have completely much ignored everything that's happened in the Obama years and in the Trump years. The last U.S. casualty in Afghanistan, at least as of this morning, was on November 17th, and that is a non-combat vehicle accident. The last hostile fire casualty in, in Afghanistan was February 8th. This means it's been more than a year. 
Can it be a forever war if our guys are not in combat? The Afghan army is fighting the Taliban. That's what we're trying to do there and train them. But we ourselves, our troops are not fighting them. Uh, if you want to say our guys are dying over there, well, I kind of looked it up and it turned out that since 2006 to, 2000, to 2020, uh, nearly three quarters of active duty personnel who have died while serving in the U.S. armed forces have not died in Iraq or Afghanistan and have not died in overseas contingency operations, meaning combat operations. It's been vehicle accidents. It's been, uh, in some cases, uh, self-inflicted wounds. In some cases, it's been, um, you know, uh, uh, alcohol has been a factor. Uh, accidents, self-inflicted wounds, or illness. Right? It, it, uh, 16% of these deaths involve vehicles. Alcohol was a factor in 14 of those. You know, look, look, it's one of those things, you know, you, you can't say, if, we, if the argument is we should withdraw from Afghanistan because our troops are dying over there, our troops die in one form or another in almost every place they're posted. And again, our perception of Afghanistan, I suspect, is shaped by the uh, intense fighting years and has not really kept up with situations. It's not that different from serving in lots of other countries right now. Now, is that enough to keep, you know, to say, oh, well, we should stay there? Well, here's the thing. It is a pretty, there's a really strong probability that if we withdraw the 3,500 or so troops that are currently there right now, that the Afghan government will collapse and the Taliban will take over. That is the assessment from the Office of Director of National Intelligence released earlier this week. The New York Times says that officials don't think that Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups will pose an immediate threat to the U.S. from Afghanistan, but they're less certain about the long term. Now, look, if we leave Afghanistan, and in particular, if the last soldier leaves Afghanistan on September 11th, we know what we're going to see. We're going to see the, the Taliban celebrating this as a victory. Part of our agreement for our ceasefire and our eventual withdrawal with the Taliban was based on them cutting their ties to al-Qaeda. Spoiler alert, they haven't done this. In fact, according to some accounts, they may be even closer to the al-Qaeda than they were before September 11th. Um, there's a good chance at some point in the not, you know, in a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we will see the headline Taliban rules Afghanistan again. And there are lots of people who would say, okay, who cares? I don't care who, who runs Afghanistan. They're all a bunch of uh, uh, primitive SOBs over there. It's not our problem. Okay, except that's probably going to affect Islamist jihadism around the world, right? This is going to be seen as another defeat for the United States. And those impressionable young men from the Muslim world are going to go, aha, I see the Taliban did defeat the United States. Took them a long time, but they drove them out. The Americans got tired of fighting. Now, does this mean you should stay in there forever? Not necessarily, but you should be clear eyed about the consequences of this. And there's one other really ominous point about this, which is that we've already seen this movie before, not that long ago, when the U.S. withdrew from Iraq in the Obama administration in a process that was largely overseen by then Vice President Joe Biden. And they were completely convinced that we were, you know, this was all this very similar arguments. We've done all we can. It's up to the Iraqis to run their country now. That We shouldn't be in here forever wars. No blood for oil, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we left Iraq. And then within a couple, about two years, ISIS had arisen in the vacuum that followed. Hopefully that will, type of scenario won't happen again in Afghanistan. But look, this is just a decade ago. You have to at least recognize it's a possibility. And the attitude of the Biden administration is kind of whistling past the graveyard here and concluding that uh, uh, we'll be able to handle anything that comes down the road. Because the lesson of Iraq and ISIS is that if you withdraw too early or you don't have the right conditions in place before you depart, you find yourself needing to go back in a few years later. I hope that is not the case. I hope this works out. But Greg, 
you know, if you if you listen to Robert Gates and his assessment that Joe Biden is always wrong about everything in foreign policy, you can't feel too confident right now. All right, Jim, let's talk about our brand new great sponsor. The Biden position on Afghanistan may not be that great, but I'll tell you what is meat from Porter Road. OK, I love meat. You love meat. I would guess most of our audience uh, certainly does. But, you know, you can get the meat on the foam trays at the grocery store. But you shouldn't. You should skip that and enjoy craft meat without leaving your house. Porter Road has you covered from weeknight staples to weekend cooking projects and everything in between. Simply put, Porter Road is an online butcher shop that delivers high-quality meat directly to you. Chefs and butchers Chris and James started Porter Road 10 years ago as a local Nashville butcher shop with a mission to fix a broken food system. For 10 years, they've tweaked and tuned their process to bring you an exceptional piece of meat all while building a more sustainable system for farmers and the planet. They work with trusted local farmers to ensure animals are raised the right way, humanely on pasture with no added hormones or antibiotics. From there, Porter Road dry ages all of their beef and hand cuts each steak and chop using old world butchery techniques to produce cuts you will not find at your local grocery store. So shop like you would at a local butcher and order items a la carte or choose from curated subscription bundles that always ship free. There's no commitment and you can customize your frequency. Plus steaks and chops arrive fresh and never frozen. So far, we've had the uh, ribeye steak on the bone and also uh, some sausages, which were had a nice kick to them, but not too spicy. Really, really quality meat. Right now, Porter Road is offering our listeners $20 off your first order of $100 or more if you go to porterroad.com martini. Again, porterroad.com martini for $20 off your first order of $100 or more. That's Porter Road, P-O-R-T-E-R-R-O-N. AD.com slash martini. Great to have them on board as a new sponsor. Jim, let's go to our crazy martini now and back to uh, yesterday's bad martini, which was the FDA CDC pause on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine as a result of those blood clotting cases that can't be resolved in uh, through the normal means. Uh, there is going to be that call today. Uh, we may get a decision as soon as today. Maybe it'll be a little bit later. But uh, Nate Silver, certainly not a conservative, but uh, someone who a lot of folks keep an eye on for his uh, statistician prowess and his prognostication, uh, chimed in on this yesterday saying, six cases out of seven million people. What a disaster. This is going to get people killed, and it's going to create more vaccine hesitancy. These people don't understand cost-benefit analysis. They keep making mistakes by orders of magnitude. Now, in response to that, CNN interviewed Celine Gounder, if I'm saying that correctly. She was uh, Biden's COVID-19 transition advisor. So, of course, naturally now she's a CNN contributor. Uh, she is dismissing Silver as a, uh, a voice worth listening to and also defending uh, the FDA and the CDC here. Here's what she said. Well, with all due respect to Nate Silver, he is not an expert on the psychology of vaccines and vaccine confidence. And you have two major drivers of lack of confidence in vaccines. One of As Nate Silver said, Jim, uh, when the first instinct is to dispute the person's qualifications who's objecting to the policy, that's not usually a good sign. But uh, what do you make of her explanation that uh, if the public sees that even the slightest little problem is getting close attention, it'll actually reduce vaccine hesitancy? Yeah. So here's the thing. 
if you're in the Biden administration and you're going on national television and in response to what seems like a really fair complaint from Nate Silver, Nate Silver is not rooting for the Biden administration to fail. Nate Silver is really not rooting for the Biden administration to fail in its vaccination efforts, right? So if Nate Silver says, hey guys, I think you really got a problem here. You could say, well, I think Nate Silver's wrong. But when you're poo-pooing his credentials, right? You say, oh, what does Nate Silver know or something like that? Look, if Nate Silver can't understand what you're doing, then there's a really good chance that the average Joe can't understand what you're doing either. Um, and the, as we talked yesterday, the messaging on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. At minimum, the FDA could have said, you know, we're going to look into these reports of these blood clots. It's entirely possible that these are uh, a coincidental cause. Blood clots can happen for a whole bunch of different reasons. Or it's possible that maybe this vaccine poses a higher risk to women of a certain demographic. If you're in that demographic, maybe you want to look to see if you can get a Pfizer or a Moderna or, one of the other, or some other vaccine option. We'll look into this and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. And for what it's worth, Food and Drug Administration says it's going to be a matter of days. Now, if they do what the European Union's uh, FDA equivalent did for the AstraZeneca one, they're going to come back a few days later and say, look, this is a safe vaccine. There's no reason people should stop taking it. We do think there's a risk of this. We want doctors to be aware of this. So we're going to kind of give them the equivalent of like a medical be on the lookout, right? If you are a doctor and somebody who's had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, looks like they might be having blood clots, that could be a cause. Please treat the blood clots and take them seriously and, and, and all of that. And that, that's all perfectly fine and reasonable. But by halting it, I can tell you for the last 24 hours, I've been hearing from anti-vaxxers and other vaccine skeptics who go, see, uh-huh. I'm hearing defenders of the Detroit mayor saying, oh, no, he was totally right that Johnson & Johnson is, uh, is, doesn't belong in Detroit, that people shouldn't use it and all that kind of stuff. It is deeply frustrated because this is going to dissuade the people who need persuading. This is going to pump up the skepticism at a time when we're probably going to be hitting that wall of uh, people who, have, who are eager to take the vaccine and, and all the easy, all the low hanging fruit is, very, is being plucked. Now we're going to get to the people who aren't so certain they should get the vaccine or aren't sure if it really matters if they get the vaccine or not. Uh, obviously to get to herd immunity, we want as many people to get vaccinated as possible. Um, are there some people who should not get vaccinated? Yes. In fact, I have to know two people who have said that because they're allergic to one of the ingredients in the vaccine, they're not going to get it. That's perfectly fine. Do so in consultation with your doctor. Listeners, as you probably know, I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. Um, and neither does Nate Silver. But if, his, if the logic of the decision-making at FDA doesn't make any sense to him, you probably should take some time to just kind of explain it to him or try to walk through it. And I think the reason they had to go to the, well, what, is, what does Nate Silver know approach is because there isn't really a good or easy way to explain the FDA decision-making, at least in this particular set of circumstances. Jim, have you noticed that the Biden administration, and this is certainly not unique to the Biden administration, I think it's uh, been going on for a long time in politics with both parties, very thin skin, uh, presents as a unifier, somebody's going to listen to all sides, but if he gets any pushback from an interviewer, from a political rival, uh, it's very quick, uh, oh, come on, man, and just very, very quick, whether it's in a debate or, or, or some other setting, they do not like to even have the slightest bit of pushback or, or ask to clarify. It's just, you must accept this because this is our position. So we're obviously right. It's, it's, uh, it's very different than the image they're trying to, to portray. Yeah, and it's worth noting, you could say probably no, very few politicians and very few administrations enjoy being challenged or being questioned. But the, the attitude of the Biden, Biden's reflex is that it's ridiculous that you'd even ask that question. 
And I'm just not convinced that that's the case. <laughs> I'm just not convinced. You know, like in many cases, they're very reasonable ones. Come on, man. This is just seasonal stuff at the border. No, no, it's not. And they, it would help if they weren't so dishonest about it. But it also is another example of the fact that like they don't, they very much want to project this image of having it all under control and knowing what they're due. And very often it's not quite as simple as they'd like the public to believe. Well, quite a day. Also, just breaking, uh, you predicted it correctly yesterday, Jim. Officer Kim Potter in Minnesota will be charged with manslaughter for the uh, fatal shooting that we talked about yesterday. So much more to come on that as well. Have a good day and uh, we'll do this again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, very grateful that you're with us. Uh, thank you for uh, telling your friends about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Also, um, follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. The Biden administration keeps saying there's a challenge at the border, but not a crisis. If President Biden and Vice President Harris were willing to come down and see what I've seen, they would know it's a major crisis if they were willing to admit it. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest edition of The Sarah Carter Show, I'll give you the real story from my own reporting at the border, and I speak with Chris Cabrera of the National Border Patrol Council. Please join us. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.